Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 9 and we're covering the period between 1600 and 1650. As you heard last episode, by early 1600, a host of European trading nations had begun to stop off at the Cape as they journeyed to the Far East and its allure of spice treasure. It was only in 1610 that the Dutch discovered the advantage of sailing east from the Cape before swinging north to reach the hub of their trading network in Java. As a result, contacts between the Khoikhoi and the Europeans steadily increased around Table Bay. In the first half of the 17th century, a regular system of trade developed between the Khoikhoi of the southwestern Cape and the visiting sailors. It boiled down, if you excuse the pun, to sheep and cattle exchanged for metals, initially iron, but then brass and copper. The Khoikhoi, as we heard last episode, were not interested in the baubles and trinkets dished up by would-be traders earlier and the Europeans learned very swiftly to trade valuable goods for valuable goods. Unlike the farmers of eastern southern Africa, the Khoikhoi, however, could not manufacture iron themselves, but knew how to smelt the metal. The Tswana, Sutu and Nguni were already mining and smelting iron, but in essence the Khoikhoi remained what is known as a Stone Age people. That's not an insult, it's how historians refer to the use of technology. The Khoikhoi valued iron and were using hoes, weapons, and other metals extensively. They didn't need to figure out how to mine the iron and other metals because there was so much trade in the product already that existed with goods flowing into Khoikhoi society before Europeans arrived, from the farmers who knew how to grind and crush rock, extract the metals, then use bellows and charcoal to generate the heat required to smelt the ore. The Khoikhoi knew how to melt down the iron they bartered and their blacksmiths worked these rods into assegais and other weapons and tools. Very few of these items actually made their way out of the southwestern Khoi areas to groups further northeast. They didn't want to trade their weapons as they were strategic. But from our archaeological finds, we know that other iron goods like bangles and necklaces were bartered further up the coast. However, the Khoi Khoi society suffered from one fatal flaw, a kind of hangover from the hunter-gatherer days, if you like. Every clan was a potential rival. Political power in Khoi Khoi society is recognized to have been dependent on wealth and not on descent, which looks democratic until you delve a little deeper into what happened during the 1600s. A man might have inherited wealth and stock and therefore influence from his father, but this process was not institutionalized into hereditary, chiefly lineages. Once the material basis, in other words the wealth, disappeared, so too did their power. It evaporated. If efficient use had been made of the European trade and resources, considerable political power would have grown. Instead, the Khoikhoi groups, which were in the best position to profit from the European presence, the Portuguese first and then the Dutch, were those living in the neighborhood of Table Bay. These were people known as the Goringhakona, the Goringhakwa, and the Goringtukwa, and were all relatively poor by standards of the region. Poorer because the Cape Peninsula, where they lived, along with present-day Durbanville Hills and the Winelands, had soils that were not fertile enough to build up a massive supply of stock animals. There was another reason. Their main competitors, over hundreds of years, were the neighbours, the Tronconqua in the north, in the Swatland, and the Trainokwa across the mountains to the east, who lived along the coastal lowlands up the Indian Ocean coast. 
By the 1650s, the largest Khoi Khoi groupings were the Hasekwa, who controlled the rich pasturage east of modern-day Swellendam all the way through to Mossel Bay, and the Inkwa, who were based around the southern cliffs of the Great Escarpment. From there, they ranged through the plains of the Kambidu, which were greener and slightly wetter than today. That was nearly 450 years ago. The Inkwa were by far the richest of the Khoi Khoi in the 1600s because of their extensive pastures, and because they controlled access to the trading networks of the interior that we've heard so much about. They brought copper from the upper reaches of the Orange River and into Namaqualand in exchange for hemp, livestock and other agricultural goods produced by the Amakosa. These goods were passed through to the Western Cape in a network that predated colonialism by hundreds of years. Then there were a really interesting group of people further east in the ecological shadow zone between Khoikhoi and these farmer communities, these folks lived in a large area which runs from the eastern cape of today through to the Namibian highlands. The Ngonokwa, the Damakwa and the Damasonkwa or Black Sand were based in this arc across the middle of southern Africa. They lived in clay houses and were bilingual, some speaking Isikosa as well as the Khoi languages and were able to nimbly switch from one side to the other depending on circumstance. Surrounding all of these Khoi Khoi groups were the San or Sokwa as they were called at the time. They lived as hunter-gatherers, and by now were to be found largely in the mountains, and many were regarded by the Khoi and the Isikosa as bandits. There's much debate about whether these Sokwa were descendants of ancient hunter-gatherers, the pre-Khoi-Khoi, or whether they were Khoi who'd lost their stock and had temporarily become hunter-gatherers. Perhaps the answer is a bit of both, as we'll see. This was the frontier between the Khoi and the Isikosa, as well as other farming communities further north, the Tswana and the Sutu. Deeper into the semi-desert north of the high plateau, the small Karoo, as it's known today, along the Zak and Sikui river valleys, as well as the Eastern Cape Mountains like the Stottenbach and into Lesotho, the Tram and the Tli still spoke non-Khoikhoi languages. In the Tli case, their rock art, which was a feature of the sand people, lasted all the way into the 19th century. But even as far south as the mountains of the Western Cape, the Ceres region, for example, the material culture of hunter-gatherers in these high areas was distinct from the Khoi Khoi of the lower reaches. The boundary between these two peoples was permeable. It shifted constantly, and as the Europeans arrived, the shifting sped up. As we'll hear later, the gifts of stock paid to these mountain people, the Tram and the Gli, by the coastal Khoi Khoi, appeared to be more of a protection racket than proper relationship affirmation, at least according to the Khoi. The tentative relationship between these two was heavily affected by the coming of the Dutch, and it is almost impossible to glean more information about how they related before the first era of Portuguese trade with the Cape, limited as it was. The Portuguese trading empire was already declining rapidly by the first quarter of the 17th century. Their actions in the Far East had not exactly endeared them to their subjects. The record of the Catholic Church in India is a case in point. The clergy destroyed Hindu temples in Goa and introduced the Inquisition to torture Jews living there who'd sought refuge in India from persecution in Portugal. The last straw for the Indians was the Portuguese attempts at forcing the gospel on the Goese and thousands of locals just moved away from Goa, abandoning the Portuguese capital in India. The church's demand on resources accelerated draining the local administrations. The effect of Indian trade on Portugal was actually catastrophic. Very little was actually traded from Portugal to India. 
In the early days, trade was more buccaneering and piracy than anything else. Huge profits were being made by the Portuguese. When this treasure slackened off, traders were left with capital locked up in ships and cargoes, which took months and sometimes years to make the journey between Europe and the Far East and back again. The loss of both shipping and lives was appalling. For a hundred years, one in nine ships sailing between Lisbon and the Indus were shipwrecked. This profligacy could not continue for long, and Portugal weakened rapidly. Its control over the seaports along the East African coastline became more haphazard. Because of how they treated English and Spanish traders, sometimes executing these, the Portuguese could expect no mercy when their ill-defended positions lay open. The Dutch were poised to exploit that weakness. All of these challenges found their way to Table Bay. During the first half of the 17th century, the English and Dutch were officially allies, but on the high seas, things were not so clear-cut. In 1601, Englishman James Lancaster sailed for the Far East once more, but this time with the authority of the newly formed Honourable East India Company of England behind him. He stopped in Table Bay to purchase livestock and conversed with the Khoikhoi using basic sounds. Lancaster called the Khoikhoi the country people. Moath was the word for cattle and Ba for sheep. In 1615, British explorer Sir Thomas Rowe also stopped off at the beautiful bay. Then in 1619, Andrew Schilling landed once more. Schilling planted a flag in the sand and formally announced that Table Bay was owned by the English. There's no record of what the Khoikhoi said at this time, but they doubtlessly would have expressed some opposition. Schilling left the flag with the Khoikhoi, who promised to look after the somewhat bizarre object. A Dutch admiral, Nicholas van Bakum, who had sailed with his fleet to the bay, indicated that he was aware of this flag exchange, but it was largely a meaningless acquisition by the English. Britain was singularly unable to exert much power across the oceans. It was only after Cromwell's coming in the 1650s that the British Navy began to make England a sea power. The Dutch and the East Indies did not take kindly to English merchants poking around Java, and in 1623, they executed a number of these merchants who'd set up a competitive enterprise at Mboina. A truce was then agreed between the English and the Dutch, but there was popular opinion that revenge should be sought for that execution. That revenge was still 40 years away. In the meantime, the newly established United Provinces of the Netherlands was unchallenged as the principal heir to the Portuguese trading empire in the east. Meanwhile, back in Europe, significant change was taking place politically. The Netherlands had been subjected to 20 years of oppression by their nominal overlord, the King of Spain, Philip II, who was as shifty as a spanner. He tried to force the Dutch back into Catholicism, but by 1585, his miraculously ham-handed attempts had led directly to an alliance of seven of his 15 northern states into what we now call the Netherlands, and known by the name of its largest constituent, Holland. It was a small step for the Dutch to become the leading Protestant mercantile nation, motivated to dominate their European enemies first. The war of independence on land was protracted and costly, but from the outset, the Dutch seized the initiative at sea. As historian Frank Welsh describes, this dubious collection of patriots and pirates or sea beggars defied the mighty Spanish forces. By 1603, the Dutch navy under Admiral Heemskerk annihilated the Spanish fleet in its own harbour at the Battle of Gibraltar. The Dutch shifted their commercial capital to Amsterdam. As early as 1601, 
Over 800 vessels left Amsterdam within a week carrying Russian corn, Scandinavian timber, hemp and tar. They ran into the Genoese and Venetians in the Mediterranean and established a Dutch consulate in Constantinople. They were flexing their sailing and trading muscle. The Dutch launched a form of mercantile trade that we continue to this day, initiating in an organization based on the perfection of a banking and exchange system that served European nations who were allies. Doing so involved a delicate merging of existing provincial companies funding the first voyages to East India and Java. This became known as the VOC, the Verenigte Oost-Indische Kampagne. It was the VOC that would become crucial in the colonization of the Cape. Much has been written about this formation in conjunction with South African history. To appreciate what happened when Jan van Riebeck and other VOC officials began administering the Cape, we must understand how the Dutch developed their own home government. These are interlinked. Firstly, the VOC needed investors, as with the Cape in the future. The lion's share of the investment capital, or just under 3.7 million guilders of the total capital of 6.4 million, was generated by the Amsterdam merchants alone. Zeeland, as the second most important province, invested less than half of Amsterdam's share, about 1.5 million guilders. The rest of the startup capital of 6.4 million came from the five other provinces of Holland. Seats on the board of directors were then allocated proportionately. This board was known as the Heeren 17, the Heeren Majoris in Patria, eight from Amsterdam, four from Zeeland, and the five others from the smaller provinces. Each provincial chamber inside the VOC could mount its own ventures to the east. Day-to-day control was entrusted to staff headed up by the first advocate, but final power lay firmly within the Heeren 17. Historian Frank Welsh points out that this was a self-perpetuating oligarchy, nominated from the richest merchants of the community, who then directed national politics. Their goal? To maximize profitability and to secure dividends. They did not have the blurred focus of the Portuguese and Spanish, who were partly driven by a belief they were proselytizing the globe for the Pope and Catholicism. The Dutch were different. They were Protestants who despised the Pope and preferred to meet to discuss their capital growth and holdings rather than immaculate conception. By the time of the massacre of the English merchants at Amboina in 1623, the Dutch had thrown out the Portuguese. They were also importing a new product called coffee from a Dutch factory at Mocha on the tip of the Arabian Peninsula and tea from Formosa, or Taiwan as we know it today. There was also an increase in the intra-Indies trade between the Dutch stations in Arabia, India, Ceylon, Indonesian archipelago, China and even Japan. From 1609, a Dutch capital called Batavia was established where Jakarta is today in Indonesia and a governor-general was appointed. It just so happened that the English East India Company was launched shortly before the VOC and was initially restricted to the mainland of India after the Dutch killed the merchants at Amboina. Yet they shared the same facilities on the voyages between Europe and the Far East, including Table Bay. At this stage, before 1650, most ships chose not to stop at the bay, but preferred to sail into the central Atlantic, resupply at Santa Elena, then stopped again in Mauritius. It was convenient, particularly regarding the westerly and easterly winds, Sailing close to the African continent had a few disadvantages, including the terrifying currents close to shore. 
Compounding this, for several months during the year, the harbour at Table Bay was exposed to dangerous storms and losses of ships at anchor was a relatively common problem. Still, that didn't stop the English from using the bay mainly as a post office and as a watering stop in the early 1600s. Ships would anchor here and pick up mail when sailing in opposite directions. The Dutch, in a magnanimous moment, agreed that Table Bay should be shared. The Netherlands, or the United Provinces, were well equipped economically, although small. They had many resources, such as their shipping industry, they were industrious, relying on dairy and wool farming, they cultivated root and grass crops, and they were excellent at horticulture. Of course, that would play out in the infamous tulip mania of the 1630s. Another factor was their geographical position, turning the Dutch into a nation of middlemen and women at the crossing of the sea, rivers and waterways of Western Europe. As their trade increased, so did their financial power. Ships and men were available for the Indian voyages, and now they had the charter providing a national company with the rights to trade on behalf of the sovereign nation. As we'll see in the coming podcasts, the concept of the charter company was going to affect Southern Africa from then on. Next episode, we'll take a closer look at the Dutch as they begin to colonize the Cape and the response from the local Khoikhoi communities. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. If you have any comments and you care to contact me, you can do so through desmondlatham.blog or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.